Today, um, where we're landing, we've been talking about David, and we're still in that moment, or still in that for a moment, and we're talking about the enemy in me. So the enemy in me is the title of it, which I know is kind of weird. But Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, God asks Israel, how sick is your heart? Um, in Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah, he wrote that the heart is exceedingly wicked above all other things. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, said there was a war within him. Even as this church planner, even as this great uh, man of faith that is responsible for the majority of the New Testament, still, he said, there's a war within me, and there's this passion to do what's wrong that's at war with a desire to honor and, you know, please God. And sometimes we lie to ourselves and we think, well, I could, maybe I'd do this or this, but I could never do that. Uh, and, and that might be true, but sometimes we lie to ourselves and say that because what we really need to do is come outside of ourselves for a minute, take an honest look, take an honest look, even with Christ in our hearts, and ask, what am I really capable of? If you did that, it might scare you. If you did that, it might scare you. Well, David had that opportunity to consider his own heart and to wake up and see the enemy that's within him. So go to 2 Samuel, which is where we are, uh, 10th book, chapter 12. Uh, and if you're looking at how far we've come and how far we have to go, don't freak out. We're going to start moving real fast through the rest of the book here soon. So, um, But David is a big part of it. So in 2 Samuel, chapter 12... I was like, that's not right. That's because I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Here we go. Um, let me read from verse 1. And the Lord sent uh, Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was kindled. He was furious at the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man... What that man has done, he deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Let me pray. Lord, your word is powerful. Your word is awesome. I have no intention of taking it out of your mouth, Lord. I ask that you put it in mine. That I have a microphone and that is a privilege but I'm not here to speak. I'm here to allow you to do that. And I pray that you do through your word to me first um, and to all of us. I'm a student just like anybody else here. I expect to hear from you because it's your word. Thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. So there's an 80s song called The Boys of Summer. Some of you may know it. It was popular in the 80s. It's still a popular today. I hear it all the time by Don Henley. But in the story, he's remembering this summer love that he had. And wishing for it again. And there's one line in there that always tempts me to do the same thing. It says, out on the road today, I saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. A little voice inside my head said, don't look back. You can never look back. 
I thought I knew what love was. What did I know? Those days are gone forever. I should just let them go. But dot, dot, dot. That's where I'll pause the song. For me, it was a deadhead sticker on a Jeep. Jimi Hendrix on the radio. The top off uh, on a beautiful day. A cigarette in my hand. The sun shining. Uh, a bunch of guys, friends, and girls piled in there, passing around a joint on the way to the lake to maybe do some drinking and jump off a rope swing or maybe go camping and spend the night doing acid. You know, my brain goes back to those things and I think, wow, I get, I, I, I get tempted to do that. But it's funny, I'm never tempted to think about the miserable pounding headache. You know, I'm never tempted to think about the blanks, like the things I don't remember because I literally cannot. They're blanked out in my mind or the things that I or or what it was like to forget constantly, which I still do struggle with. But forgetting things, the sickness, the pain, the depression that I woke up with all the time. Don't remember that. The fear of being caught. Everybody's a cop. Every car is a cop. You know, I don't think back at fond memories of that. The lies that I would put forth to cover it up. The people that I hurt. And I'm not, you know, I don't know, but maybe even people I led to their death. Just from ODs or whatever else. Um, I don't ever think about those things. The way my sin, my little fun sin just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and, and hurt people. Those days are gone forever. I should just let them go, but... We tend to look back at sin with this filter on, don't we? Like this filter. Considering the good old days, right? Uh, even wondering if, hey, it might be okay now. Now it might be fine. There's a lot of things that are illegal now all of a sudden. Is it okay now because it's legal? You know. But there's an enemy in me who seeks and desires to sin. Like wants, wants to do it. Lying to my mind, making me think on the good things. And hiding the reality of pain if I say yes. You know, and I know it. You know, I know it. And it's still in there and it still happens. So here's a point to remember. It's on the sheet if you got one. If you didn't, you can grab one on the way out or not. But the point, the kind of the point to remember is our hearts tend to fill with desire for the wrong things. And when we reach for one... Then we desire more. Now, I could just stop right there, but that's, that's strong enough. If we reach for one, we're going to desire more. But that exposes the condition of our heart unless we repent and remain close to Christ and his word. So go to chapter 11. Back up just a little bit. Let's see what happened that led to the moment I read. In verse 1, chapter 11. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go to battle, so kings go to battle in the spring because the ground is good and firm and they can move all their horses and nobody's getting stuck and nobody's having to fight the enemy and the cold. So there was a lot more civility to warfare back in the day. Uh, so anyway, they, they, the time when kings are going to go to battle, um, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. Not every human being, all of the men, basically, he's drafted people, the whole deal. He's sending everybody to Israel, everybody in Israel to battle, because that's when kings go. What's David? King, right? But David sends everybody else. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, that's the city of the Ammonites, the capital city. But David remained in Jerusalem. So he sends everybody else. It's a time when kings go to war. He sends everybody else, but he stays at home. 
Already a problem, right? Verse 2, it happened. That's such a cool little statement to me in the Bible. It happened. It happened late one afternoon. Um, This is afternoon, but you could say after midnight. You know, it's the same kind of idea. Nothing good happens if you're out after midnight, like that kind of thought. Late, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch... And was walking on the roof of the king's house. That's not unusual to walk on your roof. That was like we go in the backyard or out on the patio. It was always on the roof. That's where they went. They were in town. They hung out on roofs. Their their uh, cool-off spot was on the roof. Everything was done on the roof. Um, that uh, Let's see. He rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing that word saw means, it doesn't mean, oh, he caught a sight of her. It means he examined or he inspected. We might say he stared hard, you know, at a woman who was bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. All right? Lust, adultery, yep, there are definitely going to be issues in what we talk about today. Idleness, some preach that. Idleness is what led to this. Yes, that's true too. David should be somewhere else. He's in the wrong place. All those things are true. But what if this is less about idleness and boredom and more about just pursuing something sinful? When we go through this, you're going to see it. What if it's less about sex and more about desire rather than just sex what if it's less about adultery and more about how far you're willing to go to get what you want did you think about this when we go through this less about making a mistake and more about abandoning your inhibitions and chasing after what it is you desire the word desire it means the textbook definition is an emotion or excitement of the mind that's directed To the attainment or possession of an object from which pleasure is expected. And that pleasure might be sensual, intellectual, spiritual. It's not just, doesn't have to just be a physical pleasure, but it's, it's, it's an excitement or emotion of the mind directed at attaining or possessing an object that you think is going to bring you pleasure. It's at the heart of original sin. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, way back in the garden when it all started, in verse 6 it says, So, when the woman saw, uh, that means, again, same word, examined or inspected, when Eve inspected that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. What, wait, what did God say about the tree? Don't eat it. It's not yours. Not sure. Every other tree, every single other thing on earth. Is yours, except that. But she sees that it's good. She sees it's a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of his fruit. So same idea, desired. That's where it all began. And from that moment of caving into desire, the Bible says that that is now within us all. Because we're all children of Eve. It's all within us now. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 14 James wrote, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan isn't convincing you of anything that's not within you. In a sense, he's placing what he knows to be a struggle for you in front of you. And it's the desire for that sin within you that's enticing you to go after it. That's enticing you to go after it. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, 
brings forth death. Now, before we go on, let's just pull something out here. And this could be debated, but I've been around the block on this story and event quite a bit. Bathsheba is not innocent here. Uh, it is not okay for a Hebrew woman, any woman, but particularly a Hebrew woman, to shower in a public view. And she's on the roof of her house, which is below the, the king's house, naked showering. All right? She, she's not, this is not okay. So let's not wash that out from her at the moment. She knows she's in plain view of that palace. You know, she knows she's in plain view of that palace. She's probably been watching him, David that is. Her husband's been away at war for a pretty good while. David, it says, was super handsome, very powerful. He's the king. We could argue she's probably lonely to some degree. She's been without her husband for a pretty good while. But either way, she is exposing herself to be seen on some level. And some people argue that. I don't believe that. I think she's exposing herself. I think this is a a bit of a mutual thing, and I'll tell you why I believe that more so in a second. But she's letting her body do the talking. If you think pornography doesn't hurt, I'm not going down that rabbit trail right now, but just go look at the stats. I don't even have to fight with you about it. Even look at secular stats. You don't have to to be in a Christian world to see it. Desire always leads to greater desire. It always does. Watching creates desire, and ultimately that's always going to lead to action the more you watch. Now, what level of action? That's debatable, but it's always going to lead to some action or response, especially if power is involved. If you're talking about a, a boss, secretary, doesn't matter the male-female role here, boss, secretary, if you're talking about a, you know, a famous person, a wealthy person, all of those things play that, that role into it as well. Some people think, well, if, if I was just married to a supermodel, I would never be disappointed. Yeah, you would. Ask a rock star. You know, or somebody who's, who's or look at, the, look at Hollywood. I mean, you don't get a better example of divorce than Hollywood. That's not true. At some point, desire creates more desire. What about multiple wives? Well, if, if we went with our friends down the road over here, maybe we'd justify multiple wives and we could have uh, multiple wives or multiple husbands, I guess. But would that solve it? Well, David had a wife, y'all. Where was she? He had a wife. Not only that, it tells us in chapter 5 of Second Samuel, David had taken multiple wives and concubines. When he moved into Jerusalem, not okay, not okay. And how do we know that? Because he still wants another one. He still wants another one. Verse 3 says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That is a rhetorical question. What is the person saying? David didn't send the person to go ask who it was. He asked somebody, hey, tell me who that is. And they're like, what are you talking about, David? You know exactly who that is. You know who that is. You know? You know who that is. And notice that the person, whoever it is that responds, didn't just say the daughter of Eliam. The wife of. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. At this point, David's already sinned. Right? 
this point, he's, he's already saying, Matthew 5, 27, Jesus said, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The enemy who is within here. And David surely knows who she is. He surely does. I'll show you more, more so in a minute. Verse 4, chapter, or 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. David sent messengers, and look at this, took her. So some people argue that, okay, see, she was, this was a forcible rape scenario type. He took her. But keep reading. What does the next thing say? And she came. They're both in there together. He took her because it wasn't his wife. He didn't beat her up and force her to come perform acts. He took her because she was not his wife. That's what that means. Not some forcible thing. It means she's not yours, but you took her. And she's not crying at all because she said, I'm in. She came. So it's both and here. All right. And he lay with her. Now, she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. So this is after the monthly cycle for her. Leviticus 15. There's some rules with that. You can look it up if you want. But then she returned to her house. Now, David acts immediately on this. He doesn't give time to talk himself out of it. He sees her. He says, go get her. I want her. This is the time. And before you think you would never do this, remember, David is a man after God's own heart. Right? 2 Samuel 11, verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Man, how many stories like this go that way? I'm pregnant. Instead of a blessing, this is now a panic. David does what most people do. How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? Isn't that sad? You know, God blesses you with a child and your thought is, how am I going to get out of this? And there's an obvious road to go down with that. I'm not going to right now because that's not the topic. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. Joab, remember, is the the leader of his army who's out fighting the battle. And he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. The reason they keep referencing him as the Hittite is because he's not a Jew, but he's married to this Jewish woman. And he's loyal to David and he's loyal to Israel to the point that he's fighting for him. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, David had... The 30, they're called. You can look this up in your own time in 2 Samuel 23. The 30. These were his innermost soldiers. These were his closest, baddest, strongest fighting warriors. And in chapter 23 is one spot. There's a few. But it details like their exploits and their legendary, crazy stories in there of what these guys did. Um, Epic battles, epic devotion to David. In these stories, David's full devotion and love for them and complete trust on them. And there's a list of them by name and among them, Uriah the Hittite. So this dude is very personal to David. This is not just a random soldier. So again, I'm quite certain he's met his wife at some point. Just say it. Verse 7, chapter 11. Let's move through a chunk here really quick. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going, making small talk. Hey, catch me up on the battle. Then David said to Uriah, okay, cool. Now go down to your house and wash your feet. Basically settle in, get comfortable, take off your clothes, you know. 
Uh, and Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king, probably something romantic. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get her husband to go get busy. You know what I'm saying? Because he knows what he's done, and maybe if I can make it look like he did it. There was no DNA test back then, right? Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of David, the king of his house, with all of David's servants. And he didn't go down to his house, so he wouldn't even go down there. When they told David, hey, Uriah didn't go to his house, David said to Uriah, look, haven't you come on a long journey? Weren't, weren't you just at war? You come all the way back from the front. Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That means the time of year was probably the Feast of, of Tabernacles. So people were spending time in booths. They weren't in their homes necessarily. So he's saying that she shouldn't even be in her home. Probably David shouldn't even be in her home. That's another sermon, but... And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field, and they're out at battle. Shall I then go to my house, eat and drink and live and lie with my wife <laughs> as you live, David? I love you. Not as God lives. He's got so much love for David. As you live and as your soul lives, I would never do such a thing. Wow, at the Hittites' loyalty here. And David has betrayed him on every level. And David is the Jewish king. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also. And tomorrow I'll send you back. Okay, stick around for another day. I'll send you back tomorrow. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. So David is pushing him. Drink another one. man. Let's do a shot. Let's do another shot. You know, he's getting them all lit up. And in the evening... He goes out and lies on his couch with the servants of the Lord. But he didn't go to his house. So he goes up to where all this started with David. And he lies on the roof and falls out on the couch. Um, drunk. Doesn't go home. The integrity of this dude really though, right? You know, to, to even though he's uh, his loyalty to David, his loyalty to his soldiers, even though he's drunk, it doesn't change who he is. Even though he's drunk, it doesn't change who he is. Verse 14, in the morning, David's like, okay, try number one, fail. Try number two, fail. Try number three here. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander, and he sent it. This is some of the most disgusting words in the Bible right here. He sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he gives this letter to Uriah. It's sealed up with the king's seal so Uriah can't see what's in it. And he himself carries it back to the commander. And in the letter, David wrote to Joab, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Imagine Uriah is carrying this in his own hand. And as Joab was besieging the city, Rabah, that city of the Ammonites, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. So the bravest of the men who are in the most dangerous place, the frontline Marines who are right in the fiercest battle, right up against the wall. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. So skip to verse 24. And the servant's telling David the account, because the servants come back to give a report. And he says, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Mission accomplished, David. And then, if things couldn't be nastier for David, verse 25, he says to the messenger, 
Go back and tell Joab this. Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one, devours now another. Strengthen your attack of the city, overthrow it, and encourage him. (laughs) Hey, it's war. People die. It's all right. Don't let it bother you. Fight on. Win the day. David goes back to his potato chips and his couch. You know, I mean, this guy. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. I think that's genuine. I don't think she wanted him to die. And when the morning was over, David sent her and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It literally says displeased in the eyes of the Lord. So what David thinks is hidden is not remotely hidden. And God is not Displeased is such a general term for us. Like, displeased? That's the best you got? You know, but that's, that's not, it's not that simple a word. Disgusted God here, what's going on? Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. If you're a Christian and you're living a lifestyle that's got sin in it or you're hunting sin or you're chasing sin, know for sure if you don't come to the word, the word's going to come to you. I'm just saying If you don't come to the word in repentance at some point in time, if you're a Christian, it's going to come to you. And if it comes to you first, it's not going to be pleasant. Nathan's parable here shows David how ugly his sin is. It allows him to feel the pain of the victim and pass judgment on himself without realizing. I'm not going to reread it. We already read it. Chapter 12, look at verse 9. God goes on speaking through Nathan, he says, God speaking, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? Like God has spoken so much to you and given you so much and done so much. And it's God speaking. Why? Why do you hate that? And because of look at what you've done. You struck down. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You did, David. You did. And you've taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him. With another person's sword, the Ammonites. Now, because of that, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. Have you ever thought that in sinning you despise God? Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Now, why didn't God kill David? Why didn't he strike David? Well, there's probably several reasons we could walk through. I won't go through all of them, but I'll give you three. One is God made a promise to David, a covenant in Second Samuel verse 7. Excuse me, Second Samuel 7 verse 16 God told David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So it's going to be a seed of David that's going to be the one we've been watching for. FYI. So ever since Eve, we've been watching for this seed. Now we know it's going to be from David, the line of David, a descendant of David, where this seed's going to come from. So because of that, God's promise, that's one reason. God's grace is the greatest of reasons. He did deserve to die. 
He should have died. David wrote in Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion or love to those who fear him. Just by grace. And then three, and probably the most powerful one, is David's repentance. Now, if you write in your Bible, you can make a little note. If you don't, that's fine. But know Psalm 51. Psalm 51 parallels this moment. In fact, David wrote Psalm 51, and in the heading, it says, When David went to Bathsheba. So we know for a fact this is what David felt uh, when he was faced with this, when Nathan came to him. Verse 1, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, just a few pieces of it. Psalm 51, verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is in my face against you. You only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Yes, he hurt these other people. Yes, he wronged these other people. But when it comes to sin, he sinned hard against the Lord. Verse 9, could read it all, but I'm, I'm skipping through. Verse 9 says, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Verse 10 through 12, I would challenge you. You want a great thing to memorize? This is it. I I have prayed this to God more times than I can say. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. You ever felt like your heart was dirty? Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Make me right again. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't turn your back on me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Your guidance, your direction, your, you know, don't take that from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let me be excited to be saved. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guilt. Oh God, oh God, my salvation. You can hear this man's heart, right? You can hear this man's heart. And David is forgiven. But what's the result of his sin? What did it cost David? A sword in his family. And you see that his family goes bananas. But it continues on and continues on. And David's descendants and kingdom becomes the kingdom of Israel. And if you look in Israel today, there's still a sword. They're always at war. They're always at battle. There's always craziness going on. So three things about that. Sin always has a victim. Sin always has a victim. You need to do better at seeing yourself as that victim. But it always has a victim. Sin is always forgivable by grace through faith. There is no sin that's unforgivable. And sin always carries consequences. It always carries consequences you know, what about Bathsheba? It doesn't say anything directly with her, but she suffered too, right? Without a doubt. Her name is shamed. How many other people you know in history named Bathsheba? You know what I mean? Her name is shamed. Her husband's been killed. Uh, she's married to David, but alongside tons of other wives and concubines, her son dies. It said, that was part of what Nathan said, your son is going to die. The son you two had is going to die. Grace covers her too, though. She remains with David and has another child uh, who becomes king. That's Solomon. And that's the bloodline that God will continue to work through. So her son is in the lineage of Christ. 
She's in the lineage of Christ. Now, if you go look it up in Matthew, I think it's chapter 1 where it gives the list. Her name is the wife of Uriah, even in that list. So that never changed from God's perspective. What about the child dying? Really fast. I won't spend a lot of time on that because there's a lot of depth to it. But I'll tell you this. This child lives seven days and dies. Is it cruel of God to punish this child, quote unquote, punish this child like this? A lot of people say it was. A lot of people point to this passage saying this is horrible. God is a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. A couple of things. Number one, nobody knows when they're going to die. Everybody's going to die. Nobody knows when they're going to die. Some die young, some die old, some die very old. There's a couple, one or two in the Bible, one in the Bible that never died. You know, nobody knows when death is going to come, number one. But look how much this child did in seven days' time. You can look at it in your own time. I'm not going to read it. But among the other things, this little child humbled this king on his face, fasting and praying for seven straight days before God. That that little kid did that. That little baby did that and then went home. Mission accomplished. Check. You did it in seven days. Takes most people 70 years. You did it in seven days. You're home. You know what I'm saying? Let's think about that. And David fully expected to see that child again. He says so in, in the text. Okay. So and then number two, and this is probably for me a bigger argument. We blame God for not valuing this young, innocent life. But then we'll look at an old person who might be struggling in some ways and needing constant care. And when they die, well, that's okay. They were not happy. They were, you know, they lived a good long life. You know, they get a little good. But the baby, the child who needs the constant care, when they die, uh, we're like, well, that was totally unfair. That was wrong of God. That was whatever. The fact of the matter is we don't value life equally. He does. We don't value. We say the young person is the old person. Sure, fine, they can go to God. They're equal. They're the same. Doesn't matter. God does not look at lifespan as value before Him. And if you disagree with this, that's fine. Just determine what age you think is the right age for people to die. At what age do you decide now that it's okay for people to die? Okay. Anyway. The point here is that when we sin, we're not messing with poor choices or bad luck. The wages of sin is what? Death. Right. So we're toying with death when we sin. We're toying with death when we sin. And maybe, look, maybe you're hearing this and it's a wake-up call. I don't know. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to pray honestly. Maybe you need to pray, you know, brokenhearted. Maybe for the first time, like David did, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Maybe you feel dirty inside. Maybe you feel sick inside. Maybe you feel broken inside. Maybe you hate yourself. Maybe you got arguably good reasons for that. Christ can change everything. He doesn't just polish you. He makes you new. He makes you new. And that starts with repentance. Can you, like David, recognize your sin? I am a sinner. Create in me a clean heart. Can you cry out like he did? And mean it from the bottom of your heart. Can you trust him and trust him what he did? Tell him. You don't need me to walk you through something. Tell him. If you're a believer and you've got a new heart, let's finish with this. Why do you still fight if your heart has been replaced? How do we still fight if i got a new heart? Why am I still struggling? Well, Paul says your old self, your old heart was crucified with Christ. 
He rose from the dead and you rose with him. So your new life is in him. He rules your heart. Your new life is in him. And your old self is left dead on the cross. That's the picture, okay? You got it? If you're a believer, this is what's happened. You've risen with Christ. Your old self is left dead on the cross. The problem is you have the ability still to push the throne away from him, kick it out from under him, if you want to think about it that way, uh, to go look up at that old cross and pull that dead skin back off and, and wrap yourself back in it. Admire yourself for a minute, maybe even sit back down on the seat. But the problem is that you're now become disgusted with yourself. You become sick with yourself. You've got this broken heartedness now that wants Christ to take his seat back and wants him to nail that back up on the cross. And through repentance and prayer, that's exactly what happens. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about children of God who need to repent. But what makes it so dangerous is that until we put that thing back on and start walking around, we have this illusion in our mind that it's beautiful. Oh, it's going to be so good. Oh, it's going to be so good. We're going to look great in this. I remember the last time, or I remember, man, it was nice. Read Proverbs 5 through 7 in your own time. David and Bathsheba's son, Solomon. We'll talk about him next week. But Solomon discusses the danger of enticement and lingering around with lust in there and, and this powerful stuff. So let me close with this. I'll give you three verses. You can file them away. They're all short, and they'll help you with your fight with the enemy within. Okay? First of all, David's, I already read it, Psalm 51:10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Write that down. Memorize that. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Another one, Psalm 119.9. says, how, 1199, easy, 119.9. How can a man, a young man keep his way pure? How do you avoid all that? By guarding it against his word. Guarding it according to your word. So there's a verse of repentance. There's a verse of being in his word. Remind yourself. Memorize it. Man, garden against your word. That's right. That's right. And you get back in the word. What do you read? That's not the point. Read whatever you want. But get back in his word. All right? And then probably the one that's most powerful for me, Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You guys can stand up with me, and and we're going to sing one more song like we do. But this verse is a powerful one for me. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't give it an opportunity. Don't give it an opportunity. David should have never allowed himself to look. If he did, he should have popped away his eyes in two seconds. Don't give it the opportunity, because your flesh will gratify its desires if you allow it the chance to do it. Repent. Stay in a heart of repentance, stay in his word, and protect yourself from failing, honestly. Let me pray. Lord, your word is awesome. Thank you again for it. Um, I pray that you would guide our steps, each one of us. I pray, Lord, that for all of us, you would create in us a clean heart. I know that, uh, Lord, adultery is the kind of the pinpoint in this story, but... But there's so many other things messed up here, from murder to whatever else. But, Lord, the, 
the bigger picture is the overwhelming desire to sin that was within David, that's within each of us, Lord, that is conquered by the cross, does not have to rule our lives if we belong to you, Lord. Help us be faithful to you. Help us stay close to you in your word so that it does not, Lord. And if it does, if it does, if we do fail, if we do put that skin back on, pushing you off the throne, Lord, let us be quick to repent. Let us be quick, Lord, to to take a knee and say, man, I messed this up so bad. And I want you to rule my heart, Lord. And if anybody's made that decision for the first time, Lord, I pray they would talk to me or somebody here before they leave. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.